Well, today I want to start something new. I want you to open your Bibles with me to First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. I'm going to be starting a, a new sermon series here that will probably carry me throughout most of this year. But uh, I want to go to this now, just this morning at this point, to, uh, to give you a little bit of an introduction to the book, a little bit of background information, a little bit of context, so you can grasp what we're going to cover as I get into the text this morning. It's best to have a background when we come into it, because you're sort of coming into the letter uh, as if you already know what's going on around them. It's a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to this church, and so it's good to know what's happening. It's, it's a letter that's it's actually full of personal comments, personal encouragements from Paul to this precious church. And there's much practical instruction here. And you've got to keep in mind, this is all being given to a brand new church that's there in Thessalonica. It's a brand new congregation made up of brand new saints. And it's placed in a city full of idolatry and full of persecution against Christians. Thessalonica was an important city in its day. And it was one of the major cities in Macedonia. And it basically was the place that Paul, Silas, and Timothy went during their second missionary journey to this region. It was the capital city at the time. And it was a capital city mainly because it was located in a place that made it very important to the hub of commerce. It was located beside the Ignatian Way. It was like a super highway for commerce People traveled it going east and west and going throughout the nation. So it was an important place to plant a church to reach the nations as well. It was a large city. I don't often think about Thessalonica this way until I actually start studying it again. And I'm reminded this was a big place. It was a metroplex. It was a city at that time of around 200,000 people. It was made up mainly of basically pagan Gentiles, but there was a remnant, if you will, a presence, if you will, of Jews there at this time in this location. And the letter was written at a very important time in the Apostle Paul's life and his ministry. It was written, you got to keep this in mind, it was written after he had suffered persecution and he had been thrown into a prison, to a jail, and forced to leave the city of Philippi. It was written after this occurred in his life. And when he left Philippi, he traveled then to Thessalonica after being forced out. And he he stayed there only for a short time in the synagogues, preaching, ministering to the Jews and the Gentile proselytes. And many of those who were Jews and many of those Greek attendees, those proselytes at the synagogue, were converted to Christ through this synagogue ministry. And it was from these that were converted that the establishment of this church was brought into being. And, and after that church was established, we, we estimate, we guess, that Paul was probably there three months, at the most six months, ministering in that region, training the new Christians in the faith. And, and it was during that time that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and that church continued to receive great opposition, great affliction, great persecution that eventually led to the Jewish population forcing Paul and Silas and Timothy to leave the city. And after they were forced out of that city, they went to the city of Achaia. They stayed there briefly, and then they went to Athens briefly. And then they landed, if you will, at Corinth. And you can read about all this to get the historical background. You can read about all this in Acts 16 to 18. That gives you the whole narrative, okay? Go there and check it out sometime, not now. I want you to stay with me here. Um, from Athens, though, when he was there, the, briefly, when he was there at Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica on a journey to, to basically minister to this newly founded church and gather up some information, a report about how they were doing spiritually, how they were doing physically, what they needed. And that report is what prompted Paul to write the letter that you have before you in First Thessalonians. The good report that he received from Timothy about the church at Thessalonica caused him to pen the words that we are going to be reading this morning. And what's interesting about that, when you count up the time period here, you recognize this letter came to them only within a few months of the readers having been converted to Christ, having heard the gospel for the first time. 
And so you have to read the letter in light of knowing that these are new Christians in a newly established church facing great opposition. It's important to understand when you read through this because you're going to feel those elements better if you understand what's going on at the time. And this church started off, like I said, facing many difficult challenges. Most of these saints, they came out of pagan, idolatrous backgrounds, and they carried a lot of the baggage that they had acquired in that with them into the church. These saints also struggled with having only a small amount of biblical training from the Apostle Paul. Like I said, maybe three to six months at the most. That's not a lot. So they were struggling to understand biblical doctrines. And they also faced something even more difficult than all that. They faced persecution, and it was fierce from the Jewish and pagan neighbors around them. But I want you to understand something. As, as fragile as this church was and could be, and as difficult as the circumstances were, I want you to listen to what Paul said about them from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. And keep in mind the context about this struggling new congregation, newly converted Christians. He writes this in verse 6 about them. But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And those are precious words. The Apostle Paul writing to this new congregation saying, we want to see you as bad as you want to see us. That's hard to imagine. Paul, the great apostle, founder of many churches, he sees something unique in this congregation. This congregation had a testimony that was already beginning to magnify Christ exponentially, even as a newly founded congregation. The testimony of this church brought Paul great encouragement, and I pray today that the testimony of this church will bring you great encouragement as well. I think it will because in this letter, Paul is constantly, from the beginning all the way through chapter 1, giving thanks to God for this genuine work of redemption and salvation or sanctification that he sees in this church. And so that's how he begins the letter. Go back with me to chapter 1. He begins this letter with thanking God for the evidence of Christ's work in this church and through this church. And I believe those evidences are important. And I believe those evidences in chapter 1 will encourage us today because I want you to know this. I see God's work being evidenced here in our church as well. And I want to study this letter with you to help you learn to value the importance of these evidences and magnify them in our ministry, in our lives. And I want you to magnify them more and more as you grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. So let me just begin by giving you a, uh, an outline to meditate on as, as I go through the sermon this morning. Here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 10, Lord willing, we'll get through all that. Here's what I want you to see today. Paul gives thanks to God for how this church revealed Christ's work in verses 1 to 3. And he gives thanks to God for how this church received Christ's word in verses 4 to 8. And then lastly, he gives thanks to God for how this church reflected Christ's worthiness to the world in verses 9 and 10. So he's giving thanks for how they revealed Christ's work, how they received Christ's word, how they reflected Christ's worthiness to the world in chapter 1. Now, in verses 1 to 3, we'll begin there in just a moment. I'll read it. Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. Because God's work was made evident, evident, there's the evident term I want you to pick up on. God's work was made evident in how, number one, they revealed the fruit of Christ's work evidentially. We see that in verses one to three. Let me read those. Paul, Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy to the church 
of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before God, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ or in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work of faith in union with Christ, your labor of love in union with Christ, your steadfastness of hope in union with Christ. In verses 2 and 3, Paul's giving thanks here because the fruit of Christ's saving work was revealed in their lives evidentially. It was visible. It was manifest. It was tangible. It was producing something in them because Christ, who gives life, was reigning in their lives. That's why in verse 3, Paul first gives thanks for the evident work of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that they displayed. Their work of faith, he's talking about here, revealed the fruit of Christ's saving work in them, not just congregationally, but personally, individually. He says, for all of you, in verse 2, I'm giving thanks. For all of you individually, as members of the body, I'm seeing the work of faith being an evidence of God's fruit of salvation in your life. Now, we don't know exactly what that work of faith entailed. It's not told to us here. It, it, we just know this. It's, it's, it's an evident work. It was able to be discerned. Maybe they were caring for the abused and persecuted Christians around them. Maybe they were serving widows and orphans. And I'm sure that was probably happening. But contextually, what's he talking about? I think we can find that out. I think contextually, in immediate context, it seems that Paul is probably talking about the work of faith that's displayed in verses 6 and 7. The work of evangelism in the midst of affliction. In verse 6 it says, And you became imitators of us. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we have no need to say anything. So I think the work of faith, we know, I think, tangibly from the context, could have been the work of evangelism in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their afflictions. Now, what we need to understand about this work, it's the kind of work that, that reveals a rock-solid trust, faith in God. It reveals faith in God to protect you and direct you as you are teaching the faith to the lost, no matter what it costs you personally. So it's a work of faith, and it's a work of instilling faith in others, teaching faith to others, even if it costs you personally to do so. And, and that kind of work, saints, is the kind of work that reveals the transforming work of Christ in us to the world. It produced evangelism. It produced trust in God that took them out of their comfort zone and into the world to preach Jesus in the face of affliction. And that's worth giving thanks for. And that's what Paul does here. But it's the kind of work that not only requires faith, it requires love. It requires love if you're going to carry out that work faithfully to honor Jesus. So next, in verse 3, Paul gives thanks for the evident labor of love in the Lord Jesus that they displayed. And he's talking about basically the, the labor for others that was prompted by a love for Jesus and his praise. That's what drove them to do this. That's what pushed them into their labor. It was the love of Christ that compelled them, that drove them. And I want you to understand something about that kind of love. It faithfully testifies to Christ's love. And if you love Christ and you seek to magnify him in this life, in this world, you will labor for the sake of others so that they would know the Savior. You would go into the world passionately and compassionately. 
faithfully, doing what no one could bribe you to do. Money could never solicit the kind of love that the love for Christ solicits in the saints to move us out of our comforts for the sake of the lost, even if it costs us personally. So that's why he's giving thanks for this here. He's giving thanks because that labor of love magnifies Jesus's work in their life. Lastly, there in verse three, Paul gives thanks for their evident, <coughs> excuse me, their evident steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus. Now, this kind of hope could be described as, I think better described as, a steadfast assurance. The steadfast assurance that is based on Christ's promises. What did he promise those who work in faith to magnify him and labor in love to magnify him? He promised that he would never leave them nor forsake them, that he would be with them always, even until the end of the age. And so I think he's talking about the kind of hope that's described, like, in, like I said, as steadfast assurance of Christ's promised presence in our faithful working, in our loving labor as we suffer for his sake. Now, I think this kind of steadfast assurance in Christ's promised presence is made evident very clearly in the book of Acts. If you would go with me there to Acts 7. You probably know the story. I think Stephen reveals the promise of Christ's presence in the midst of our suffering for Christ's sake. In 754, I'll begin reading. Now, this is Peter, Stephen, who had been preaching an Old Testament gospel message, calling out their sin of rebellion against God and calling them to repentance. And here's the reaction when they heard his word of truth. It wasn't mixed with faith. It was mixed with anger. And he was going to suffer because of it. But he's going to hang on to the presence of Christ who's with him in that suffering, as you'll see. Now, when they heard these things, those who are in opposition to him, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. That's anger made manifest. But he, Stephen... Controlled of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And this is astounding. Jesus never gets off the throne. He reigns there. All authority is in him. The only time we see him off the throne is when his saints are suffering for his namesake. Could you imagine the revelation of this promised presence? When Stephen sees Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You're going to enter in. I'm going to bring you home. That drives him. To have a steadfast hope in the midst of that suffering. And church, when we do so, when we evidence this kind of hope, it reveals that we believe in Christ's promised presence. That we trust in that and it will cause us to go out to those who are hopeless. It will push us to go out to those who are in need of grace and the promise of Christ. And we'll do it with joy. Because that's the way Jesus brought it to us. I want you to understand that God's work in us that, that Paul is giving thanks for here in this church. God's work in us is intended by God to magnify Jesus. Therefore, it must be evidenced. It must be displayed in our lives. And here he tells us how they displayed it. They displayed it through a faith that reveals Christ's work. A labor that reveals Christ's love. And a hope that reveals Christ's promises. That's why he's giving thanks to God for this church at this time in this letter. And let me ask you a question this morning in regard to those evidences. Do you see the evidences that we see here of Christ's work being made manifest in your life? 
Are you evidencing a work of faith in Christ, a labor of love in Christ, a steadfast hope in Christ? Maybe you're not. I know we can all excel still more. But maybe you're not because that evidence is being crowded out by clouds of doubt and discouragement and selfishness or possibly even hidden sins you have not repented of. And if they're clouded and crowded out, I want to ask you to do something this afternoon, not now. I want you to spend some time meditating on Jesus. Spend some time studying about the power of Christ's saving and sacrificial work at the cross. Go to Romans 5 and 6, read and absorb. Look at the work of Christ and the promises that are ours in him and see if that does not cause you to want to give evidence in a way that makes much of your Savior. Could you, could you just see these Thessalonian believers and thinking, <clears throat> what do you mean? I wouldn't want to magnify Jesus. That's what I live for. I just came out of darkness. I've been brought into the light. How could I not evidence a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfast hope in Jesus? How could I not want to do that? But we live in a comfortable environment here today, not under affliction. So it's easy for us to say, well, those are important aspects of Christian theology, but I don't know that I need to display them practically. I mean, are people really looking at the evidences of Christ's work in my life that way? Yeah, they will. And they'll be manifest through us congregationally. This should be our testimony. Other people and other churches should be able to give thanks to God for the work of faith in us, the labor of love manifested through us, the hope in Christ that we steadfastly walk in in persecution and suffering. It should be testified to by others. That's what Paul's doing here, and I pray that you'll examine your own hearts to see if that can be said of you today personally. Now let's look on down back in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians one four is where I'll begin. Here you're going to see that Paul gives thanks here to God for this church because God's work was made evident in them when number two, they received Christ's word, that is the gospel. And they received it joyfully. We see that in verses 4 to 8. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's how he knows that they were beloved and chosen by God. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord, the gospel, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. An astounding testimony. They received Christ's word, he says here, joyfully. He's giving thanks because they received this word and it produced a love in them that magnified Christ's love joyfully, externally. It moved them again out of their comfort into conflict, into the world to declare Christ's worth. So verse 4, he just begins there by giving thanks for the evidence that this displays. It gives evidence to their salvation. Their reaction, their, their, the way they received Christ's word, the gospel, gave evidence to their election, to their salvation. And in verses 5 to 8, he's going to tell us why he had such great confidence of their salvation, of their election. He's going to tell us that it was due to their joyful reception and proclamation of Christ's word in the face of difficulty, in the face of opposition, in the face of affliction. What's great about them and the way that he describes what he's giving thanks for is here. These saints are living out 
the answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17, 17 and his high priestly prayer for his elect. They're living it out. They're receiving the word and it's changing their lives. And Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, that his people would be sanctified by the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. These people here in Thessalonica, they were set apart by the word. They were changed. They're facing affliction. They're facing opposition. They're they're facing difficulty, discouragement, and they're joyful. Because of the word they've received. That's astounding. Is, Is that your testimony? Is that the way you respond to the word that you've received? Is your life set apart by the word you've received? Is it sanctified? Is it set apart unto God for his glory because of the things that you hear preached and taught about Christ? What's the testimony of your election? Can we say this of all of us? The the testimony of your election, the, the confidence I have in your election is the way that you receive the word joyfully and it moved you out into the world practically. Powerfully, evangelistically. Is that our testimony? That's what I want our testimony to be. That's why God planted a church here in Ada, just like he planted there in Thessalonica. It was to make much of Jesus through the transformation of his people. Now look on down to verse 5. I'll read the first part. Well, let me read verse 4. For we know, brothers, beloved by God or loved by God, that he has chosen you because, there's the purpose clause, okay, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's an important line in the text. Notice that they didn't receive the word like some people receive a dry theological lecture. Tapping their finger, waiting for it to get over. No, they received it joyfully. They didn't receive the words by merely giving intellectual assent to the theological truths of the message. They didn't do that. And here's why they didn't do that. That would have been suicide. Because to believe in Christ, to believe the gospel that Paul preached, meant you must repent, you must turn from your idolatry, and you must embrace persecution. Sure, and coming affliction if you believe this message. So it wasn't just an intellectual thing. It wasn't just a, I walked the aisle, said the prayer, I'm in, I believe. I know the the facts about Jesus, but I don't trust in Jesus. But that's okay, because I'm a Christian. Well, you wouldn't be called a Christian. You wouldn't want to be called a Christian at this time, because it's going to mean persecution. And the way they received it testified that this was a supernatural work. Who in their right mind would follow Jesus if you knew it was going to cost you your life? The elect of God will. Because the word came to them in power. Not in man's power, not in man's ability or oratory, but it came in the power of the Spirit. It was the supernatural power of God, the Holy Spirit, that came to them through the word preached. And through the word preached, the Holy Spirit created faith in Christ in them. He created repentance of sin in them. And he created assurance of salvation in them. We know that because that's what verses 9 and 10 say. We'll get to that. You can look at it later. But that's what, that's what it says. All those things are there. Faith in Christ is in their life. Repentance of sin is in their life. Assurance of salvation is in their life. Because the word of God wrought it. It was planted by the Holy Spirit. It was supernatural. And I got a question for some of you today. If you're if you're here and you're not a believer, um, I want to ask you: Can you see the supernatural work 
of Christ's word working in people who profess faith? And I hope the answer is yes. I hope you can see them doing things that no one would do apart from God compelling them to do it. But I also want you to understand, if you're an unbeliever, that you can't receive the word of God by your own strength, by your own intellect. It can only be received by the Spirit's power. But let me tell you some good news with that. When it comes with the Spirit's blessing and power, it will produce the same joyful results that we see in the saints at Thessalonica. It will bring life to the dead. It will bring those in darkness to the light. Let me show you an example of the Spirit working through the Word and its power that it produces and it's joyful and it's powerful. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. It was like a, a warfare scene. And he led me around the, among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. These are bones with no life in them, no hope of life in them. And he said to me, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know, it's the right answer. Only God knows. Then he said to me, prophesy or speak or preach over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Does that not sound insane? That's what happens every time you preach the gospel to the lost. They're very dry bones. Yet we are still called to preach to the dead Because there is power in the message that will bring them to life. He says this in verse 6. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. God's going to speak through the prophecy here. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin And put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's what God does every time he regenerates a sinner. He does it for his own glory, so that they would know that he is Lord, that he is God, he is sovereign, and he is good and just. Verse 7 says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy or preach to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. (laughs) Is that not astounding? See, you can't receive God's word on your own. You need the Spirit's power, but when it comes with power. When he is working through the word, he's going to bring life to the dead. You will come. It's an irresistible call when he calls through the word. His people will come. And the word will be received with joy. As a result of the spirit working in us for the glory of Christ. Now. My first question was to the lost and point of fact to the lost that may be among us, but my second question is to the saints. I want to ask you a question, and this is a question that hits me pretty hard. Do 
They received the word with joy in the midst of affliction. At their conversion, right? Do we still receive the word of Christ joyfully in the midst of affliction? Do we? Was it something that just happens at conversion? We're not going to experience that again? Why not? The word of Christ still has the power to speak to our greatest needs. It still has the power to grant us peace from God. But sometimes in the midst of our affliction, we run from it, not to it. We should never do that. There is life in the word for the saints. There is a fountain of living water for the dry and the thirsty who hunger and thirst for Christ. There's food, there's nourishment, there's hope. In the midst of affliction, as we receive the word. So ask yourself, do you receive the word of Christ currently in the midst of suffering and difficulty? Do you receive it joyfully? Or are you pushing it away because you hurt too bad? It's too difficult. Don't do that. It has the power to produce what it produced in the saints at Thessalonica still today in us. As we receive it in faith and declare it joyfully. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians with me. There in 5, verse 5b, he talked about the gospel coming to them not only in word, but also empowered by the Spirit and with full conviction of those who proclaimed it. And then he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Notice it's for their sake that they... Paul, Silas, and Timothy go from suffering to suffering to bring joyful news of God's grace to the pagan city of Thessalonica. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be. So in the first part of verse 5, we, we see that the gospel came to this church, these sinners at the time, in the power of the Spirit. And we also see that the gospel's power wasn't just limited to the word. It was working through the men. The gospel's power was revealed in the character of the men that professed it. This is important. Please don't overlook this. The word was preached by men who lived out the gospel, lived it out in such a way that they could be said to have had full conviction of what it testified to. They, they lived out the gospel. And how do we know they lived it out that way? With full conviction? Because they lived it out sacrificially. They came to these people in the midst of their difficulty. And knowing that it's going to cost them personally. And they, they, they did it joyfully for the hope of seeing sinners saved. And Jesus magnified through the gospel. The men who preached this lived it. There was power in that. There is authority in a person's life when they live out the truth they hold dear and profess. Without it, he might be called a hypocrite. You're a pretender. Without full conviction and submission to the word that you've received, you won't speak with authority. You'll be in a ringing sound in the ear of people that is just offensive. But when you live it out... There's something salty that they can taste. They can, they can see the flavor of Christ in you. And if we want to magnify Christ and his love in our own lives, we have to learn to live in Christ and live out Christ's love with integrity and do it personally, sacrificing things for the sake of others to make much of Jesus. Now, in, in 6 and 7... We see the Thessalonians respond to the word they received and the preachers that testified to the power of the word they received. We see them respond by following, following Paul and Christ's examples of how they made much of the word through their lives. Look at verses six and seven. 
He says, and you became, as a result of all this happening in verse 5, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's Jesus. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That, that is the work and the, the testimony of both Paul and the Lord Jesus. They did their ministry in much affliction and they did it with much joy in the Holy Spirit. And he's saying you became imitators of us. Verse 7, so that you became an example. Such good imitators, such good reflectors. That's a better word maybe. Reflectors that you became an example of the work of Christ, the power of his love and his willingness to suffer. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Don't you know that was encouraging to the other Christians who were suffering? They're scared, they're timid, they're backing up from their convictions. And then they hear about this great radical work in the church at Thessalonica and their boldness and their joy. And all of a sudden they're going, wow, we can do this. The same Christ that saved them saved us. We can do this. And and what we see here in 6 and 7 is is a testimony that tells us that Paul's integrity, his character, his example compelled them to imitate him. Imitate his sacrificial joy and his love that, that took him from a Philippian prison into more persecution. As he came to them with the gospel, took him from a Philippian prison to face this persecution just to bring Jesus praise and them salvation through the message of Christ. But Paul wasn't doing anything all that special, to be honest. In the sense that he wasn't doing it on his own. He was compelled. In First Corinthians five or Second Corinthians five, he tells us that the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ was constraining him, and all he was doing was imitating his master when he did these things, sacrificially, joyfully, lovingly. Jesus' sacrificial joy and love didn't bring him from a prison to face suffering, but his sacrificial love and joy brought him from heaven to suffer for sinners like us on earth. Hebrews tells us that For the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross. The joy of the magnification of his grace, his power, and his love through the redemption of sinners that he has been given by the Father. And he died in their place. For that joy, he faced suffering. It was to reveal God's grace, God's love to us sacrificially. Joyfully and importantly here, personally. Paul was imitating this perfect example of sacrificial joy and love. And that's what they were following. Church, when when we follow these examples in the scriptures, we will magnify Christ. We will magnify Christ in our own lives. We'll, We'll magnify Christ to others. We'll magnify his love. His truth, and we will end up encouraging other Christians as we walk in these things. That's what verse 7 is talking about. They were an example. They were encouragements there to the other people in other locations. In verse 8, Paul tells us that their joyful example encouraged and moved throughout not only the regions where these Christians were, but it also moved in such a way that it echoed the power of God's word throughout the world evangelistically, probably through the superhighway that was located there. And you've got to think about what's going on here. These saints, they're placed in a very strategic location. And it would have been easy in a city of 200,000 for let's just get together and have our congregational meetings. But instead, they go out into the community. They go out and proclaim things that they know will they, they will face persecution for. And what they're doing is they're, they're availing themselves of this great providential opportunity to be magnifiers of Christ, not only in Macedonia, but throughout the entire world. And that's why Paul gives thanks to God for them. They labored to use every opportunity they could afford to magnify Jesus joyfully and sacrificially. 
And here's the question for us. Are we doing that? I'm not. I could. So could you. Are we using every opportunity that's available to us to magnify Christ joyfully? In the midst of difficulty, yes. In the midst of comfort, yes. Let's do that. He's worthy of that. The reception of God's word that we see testified to here, the beginning of this, the reception of God's word is evidenced to us in this church and it should be evidenced in us as a church when we learn to labor joyfully in Christ's love and sacrifice, not just for ourselves, not just for our own encouragement, but to reach the lost and become examples to others of the work of Christ. Now, lastly, in uh, verses 9 and 10, Paul's going to give thanks to God for the Thessalonians because God's work is made evident in why they, number three, reflected Christ's worthiness to the world powerfully. That may be hard, may be hard to grasp what I'm trying to get across, and maybe I can make it clear, I hope. Um, we see what I'm talking about in verses 9 and 10. Let me, let me read that. For they themselves report, that is, the world, the other believers, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I believe this text is talking about Jesus' worthiness. <laughs> and I believe they are reflecting his worthiness to the world powerfully here. Paul gives thanks for that because I think that the worthiness of Christ was reflected in the hope that they had that revealed Christ to the world powerfully, even though they were going to suffer for doing so. In verses 9 and 10, Paul, Paul gives thanks here because they were reflecting their hope, not just in Christ's worthiness, but their assurance of Christ's promises. His promises. They were reflecting the promises of Christ to the world through their active and powerful witness. You have to think about their witness Pagan, pagan people. I mean, pagan in the literal sense of pagan. Idolaters. Radically transformed by a message of a Jewish carpenter. And their lives are making much of him, reflecting him, changing because of him. It says in that verse that a radical transformation had taken place so much so that they, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. <laughs> That's pretty radical. They, they didn't simply get tired of idolatry and say, hey, let's give Jesus a try. Now, that's blasphemous. That's demeaning. That's not what's going on here at all. They turned to God by his work of sovereign grace. And then their eyes were opened to see the worthiness of their Savior. And they sought to serve Him out of joy. And they did it powerfully. Their eyes were opened by the supernatural power of God's Word to see the depth of their sins and the revelation of our all-satisfying and worthy Savior, Jesus Christ. The light of God's word and the work of Christ then took them from idolatry, delivered them from darkness and opened their eyes to see and rest in Jesus, the living and true God. He who promises to deliver us from the wrath to come because he took that wrath upon himself in our place at the cross. They're reflecting the worthiness of Christ's work powerfully because they can rest in it. His promises have secured them. 
His word has revealed his worth to them. Have your eyes been opened to see him that way today? I hope they have been. Because if not, you are lost in your sins and will face eternal wrath, not deliverance. Unless you repent and believe in Christ. Unless the Spirit of God illuminates your heart. And if he does, you can take great comfort in this. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And I promise you that if you you do that, if you turn to him, if you turn in faith to Christ, to trust in his work, his worth and his word, and you turn from idols, the idols of sin and self-righteousness that reign in your life, I promise you that you will gain something far better than immediate pleasure. You will gain a treasure of unmeasured worth in Christ's promised deliverance because in that deliverance you get Christ, the Savior, the one who gave his life up for you to make much of his glory through you. It's that worthiness of Christ that moves us to testify to the world powerfully. Because our trust, our rest in Christ's promise to deliver us from the wrath to come should move us radically to go out into the world and testify to him. The promise that no wrath abides upon us is our steadfast hope that causes us to steadfastly testify to Christ's worthiness. And go out and reach the lost with boldness. As the Thessalonians did. Jesus is our anchor within the veil. We will not be lost. We we are all immortal until Christ calls us home, Jonathan Edwards would say. We have a steadfast hope. And that is based on his worthiness. The accomplishment of his work. And we should powerfully testify to that in the world. Now, I hope... As we read Thessalonians over the next few months, I hope that you'll never cease to be amazed by God's work that you see going on in this church. Think about what happened. Let me recap. God sent some faithful servants to a pagan city to proclaim the word of Christ in the Spirit's power and personally, sacrificially. And then, miracle upon miracle... Regeneration occurred. Regeneration took place in the darkened hearts of pagan sinners. And they were so transformed by this message, the gospel of Christ, that they abandoned the only thing they ever knew that would comfort them. They abandoned their idols. They abandoned what they trusted in to serve Jesus, the living and true God. Has the work of Christ radically transformed you in that way? That you are willing to abandon everything to serve Jesus, the living and true God. We know that is God's will and desire for his people. We see it in Thessalonica. And I hope you are never, ever dulled by that. I hope it always thrills you. Look at how they served him. They served him by revealing the glory of Christ's work through their lives, evidentially. They served him by receiving Christ's word in the face of affliction, yet joyfully. They served him by reflecting Christ's worthiness to the world powerfully. Church, that should absolutely astound you. And it should also encourage you. It should encourage you because as your elders gather and we talk about what God's doing among you, we can see that God is still at work in our church as well. And he is making evident your witness for Christ through your transformation. But we can excel still more. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. 
I want you to pray that we'll always do that to make much of Jesus to the world. We're going to uh, close with a song that I think really just summarizes those last two verses that we went over this morning as a church, verses 9 and 10. This is a song about turning from dead idols to serve the living God and then to offer our life faithfully to Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, to be empowered by that steadfast hope to live our life for Jesus and, and knowing that the darkness and, and the deadness of sin is only overcome by the light of the gospel. The song is called Transcendent Light. And on the chorus, I would love it if we could sing it together. It, uh, it goes like this. And this light is leading me to see that you are everything. You are everything, and this life given to me, I will offer faithfully, I will offer faithfully. I was in the dark so long, my eyes adjusted. I'd feel my way around like no sunrise was coming. Even shadows need light behind the subject. Staring at the back of my eyelids, nothing could tackle that cataract of my heart's eyes, though. The iris of my soul shrouded in dark rivals. No light in the universe could remove the curse of this human fuming with sewage works. And I need your transcendent light sent. Condescend its brightness, conquer any vices, volunteer your righteousness. God, I need a gracious scapegoat. I am so cane to able. I know my ways are fatal. Am I drowning? Likes to drown you out. This coward shouts. I lost faith when I found my doubt on a crowded route. But calling for intervention to fix my wretched soul is evidence transcendent light. It has already shown. This light is leading me to see that you are everything, you are everything, and this life given to me, I will offer faithfully, I will offer faithfully. Flooded with particles of light, erase the darkness of the night. Rushed in with marvelously bright beams, breaking carnal appetites. This light is brighter than the closest star. This light is higher more than solar far. But near those who fear its power and beauty, the hero appeared so lowly how he pursued me. His tears flowed, his torso pierced so to remove thee who didn't adhere close to the true king and that was me I was the source of my darkness the author of all my horrors the fallen force that would harness every ambition to bring deadly demolition I never reverenced the risen till he led me to repentance he transcendent light has a name, swallows darkness, casting rays over all the hardships, past the pain. The God of all men will have his way, and there's no darkness deep enough to keep his touch way out of reach of us. What Jesus does is intercede for us, his light overshadows my deviance. us to be here this day and to come together and hear your word. I pray you would just open up our hearts to receive your word the way they did in Thessalonica with joy 
and that joy would overflow and just spill into the the needs of this community. God, that if we truly know Christ, then, then we truly need to have a desire to make Christ known. God, I pray um, you would keep us this week, and Lord, you would open up doors for us to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.